WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. We're here with our next interviewee. Jamili Lorena Ramos de Lima is here to tell us about her research. Hi Jamili, can you please tell us what you study? Sure, so I'm a second student in the Integrative Biology Department and my focus is try to understand why half of all the vertebrates, all the animals that are vertebrates, they are fish. So we want to understand how this huge diversity arose throughout evolution. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, just to give our audience a quick background, what is the difference between a vertebrae animal versus an invertebrate? That's a really good question. So the vertebrates, they are the groups that comprise mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians, and fish. And they basically, they have bones and they have the vertebral column. While the invertebrates, usually they are small, and they are the most well-known are insects, some crustaceans, molluscas, so those other small little animals, and they don't have, they have an exoskeleton, and they don't have the vertebral column, so those are invertebrates. What specifically are you researching when it comes to these fish who are vertebrates? What we know is that this group of fish that's the most diverse nowadays, basically almost 98% of them, they are part of one subgroup that we call the teleosts. So the teleost fish, they are the ones that you can think of any fish that's living right now, there's a high probability that it's gonna be a teleost fish. So we have fish that live in the ocean and fresh water and in caves, fish that goes out of the water, fish that rest development and they stay like inside of the eggs for like months and maybe years. So they have all those cool adaptations. And then we also know that this group went through a, what we call a whole genome duplication. So at one point in the, develop, in the evolution, the entire amount of DNA in each one of these cells duplicated. And we hypothesized that this extra cups of DNA, they may be related to how those fish are able to adapt to different environments. And then for that, we are looking for a specific family of genes that is expressed in the, in the central nervous system. And then we are trying to understand where those genes are expressed, where those cups are expressed. And we are comparing with what we call gar. So it's like a fish that it's not a tilio. It's kind of like, it's more, it's a proxy to the ancestral, but it's not the ancestral too. But it has just one cup of the genome. And then we compare with tilios fish that have cup A and B of many of those genes. And then we are trying to see if there is any difference in the expression pattern, maybe if there are other regions that, that it's expressed. So you had mentioned that one of the fish that you study are the gar fish, and then you can pretty much pick whatever fish you want from that other telos fish that you were talking about as well to study in terms of its gene expression. Are you doing these studies on fish that can be found like, for example, here in Michigan, or is this something that you're looking on a much more macroscopic level that studies populations, for example? Um, so our work is not really, at least not right now, it's not in a population level, it's more a molecular level. The gars actually can be found in the Great Lakes, but we don't collect them here. We get them from Louisiana where there is a facility and they help us to catch them in the wild. And then about the telos fish, so we have zebra fish that's a model organism. So many, many researchers around the world use zebra fish because it really is, they are small. 
and it's really easy to keep them in the lab and breed them. So we do have a calling of zebra fish, and we are trying to get some other zebra, some other fish that we can just buy from the pet store to try to compare with the gar and see what are those expression patterns. You mentioned that all of these fish, the Tilios fish, that their gene expression was duplicated. Do you have any indication why that is, or even maybe what specific genes may have changed in how they're expressed? Yes, so the entire amount of DNA, not just the gene, was duplicated. And then what usually happens is that after we have an event like that, the majority of those genes, they are lost. Like they accumulate mutations, it, they don't have any useful function. So they don't do anything. From those 20, 25% that are kept as COP A and COP B, we know that there is a high percentage that those genes are involved in the central nervous system function. So that's why we are targeting one family of genes, the glutamate receptor family, which have a strong function in the central nervous system, and that is kept in high duplicate rate after the whole genome duplication. Well, that was very interesting to hear about how you're looking at the differences in the way that the gene expression as well as the DNA creation and duplication is taking place when it comes to these two different families and subgroups of fish. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk to us about that, and we look forward to hearing more about this in a more expansive interview. You're welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. We're speaking with our last interviewee for the COGS Graduate Academic Conference of 2023. We're here with Betul Kara about her research. Betul, thank you so much for joining us. What do you study? Thank you for having me. I'm studying Alzheimer's disease especially early development of the disease and how one of the pathological hallmarks build up in the brain in the early course of the disease. Thank you so much for joining us today, Batul. Typically, people associate Alzheimer's with memory loss, but what are some other less common symptoms of Alzheimer's? That's a very good question. And there are a lot of like other symptoms besides the severe cognitive changes, cognitive decline, memory problems. For instance, people or patients may change their personalities or the disease actually change their personality, right? They, it makes them more like edgy and angry, just those mood swings. And one other things I always found interesting is they have those blues at the like at the end of the day, the time, the sunset time. They got some kind of like depression. It might not be only like due to Alzheimer's disease. There are other kinds of diseases also show that kind of an outcome. But this is one that I found interesting. Could you clarify for me, are you working more with the patients or are you looking more at something happening in the brain molecularly? Yes, so I am not interacting with any patients, but my research is purely on post-mortem brain samples, human brains. And so I'm getting those differentially processed brain sections from human brains, from like different brain banks actually. And I use them for different kinds of lab techniques that I do kind of like cross-validate what I do in the lab. Earlier you had mentioned that you're specifically looking at one of the early stages of Alzheimer's, but if you're looking at post-mortem, I have to imagine most of the brains that you're getting are already very developed later stages of Alzheimer's. How are you able to distinguish what could be an early onset symptom of Alzheimer's when it's already progressed so far in the brain? Yes, I love that question. 
So, yeah, well, with the postmortem brain samples, of course, in the later stages of the, or late stage brains, everything is like so kind of like messed up in the brain pretty much the like immune cells overreacting a lot of like quote-unquote garbage build up in the brain so it is like pretty advanced stage but luckily my samples are coming from a really broad spectrum which includes healthy controls or it's called like MCI mild cognitive impairment which people had some level of cognitive decline and some level of pathology but not as severe as an advanced Alzheimer's case. So you get a wide range then that that makes a lot more sense. What are you hoping to understand after you've analyzed all of these postmortem brains? As we mentioned, these are post-mortem and the nature of my study is cross-sectional. But still, because I'm getting samples from a huge spectrum of the disease, that at the end we are hoping to be able to come up with a better understanding of when and what kind of pathological hallmarks accumulate in where in the brain. I would like to be careful about where because I'm only looking at the three specific brain regions. So among the three brain regions. But again, with the whole information, hopefully we can, in the future, like pinpoint, better pinpoint some therapeutic window that we can really do some mechanistic targeting. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk to us about this research. It means a lot to me personally. I know when growing up as an undergrad, one of the organizations that we often donated funds to and raised philanthropy money was for the Alzheimer's Association. So I really always appreciate hearing about people's work when it comes to dealing and helping to manage and mitigate the issues that arise with this terrible disease. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.